always glad it's his back and not mine lifting this pulpit up here. You know, people ask, uh, some will ask, well, what is Pastor Emeritus? All that means is the, uh, the old man is still breathing. And, and, and they bring me back from time to time to speak to you as a father would speak to his children, a father to a son and a father to a daughter. And it's always a privilege to come back home and, and to do so. Have you, have you seen the movie uh, Tarzan lately? Holly and I saw it last week twice. Uh, we saw it the early part of the week, and it was great. It's a great movie. A lot of, a lot of great movie. Recommend it. But uh, Thursday night, we were to have a family uh, swim party, but little Claire, our three-year-old uh, grandchild, she had an earache, so the whole thing was called off. So we had a free night. I said, Holly, we have nothing to do tonight. What do you want to do? She said, I want to see Tarzan again. You know, that, that led to a discussion on, on, on what is manly man? You know, because I watched the way she watches Tarzan, and it's not quite the way she, she looks at me. <laughs> I've uh, been working on my jungle call, and according to the movie, women like you to sniff the hair on the back of their head, but that doesn't seem to be working with Holly very much. <laughs> But it did bring up a question, knowing that we're going to talk about humility as we study the Beatitudes together in the next two weeks today and next Sunday, Lord willing, is this whole thing on, and is humility a manly man kind of thing? I mean, is humility a, a, a virtue or is it a vice? Uh, is humility just another way to describe somebody who has no backbone? There's a story told, a true story, of a rider on horseback years ago. And he came across a squad of soldiers trying to move a large timber of a wood. And the no writer noticed that there was a well-dressed corporal standing by giving orders. Heave! Heave! Well, the timber wasn't moving. The, the, the writer asked the corporal, why, why don't you help them? And the, and the corporal responded, well, sir, I'm a corporal. To, to which the writer dismounted, took his place with the men smiled and said, now all together, boys, heave. Big piece of wood slid into place. Stranger mounted and addressed the corporal. Said, next time you have a piece of timber to move, send for the commander-in-chief. And only then did the corporal and the men realize they were looking into the eyes of George Washington. Is humility manly man? Or is it simply a description of somebody without a backbone? You know, humility, we admire as long as in someone else. For ourselves, not so much. Because humility at times feels, well, it feels a little bit humiliating, does it not? So, so what is humility? Maybe more important, why is there humility? Maybe even more important than that, How? How is their humility? What does this thing look like? I want to introduce you to an introduction to a sermon, the longest recorded sermon we have of Jesus. Now, Jesus probably gave parts of the sermon many different times during his three years of ministry. But in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Matthew gives us a summary of the whole sermon called the Sermon on the, sermon on the Mount. And in the introduction, Jesus says, I want to first make sure you understand you got to think right before you can do right. 
So he introduces the sermon about what this kingdom ethic is all about by basically, what is the attitude behind it? How do you get your head around this sermon on the mount? And so he introduces the sermon with what we call are the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. Now, this is the attitude behind a kingdom ethic. Who cares about a kingdom ethic? I mean, who even cares about an ethic? You do know every person you know lives by an ethic. An ethic is what you believe in. It's what defines you for who you are. It's what drives everything you do. And you can summarize basically all the ethics that every person you know carries out in one of seven. First one's materialism. The ethic of materialism is basically whoever ends up with the most toys wins. So who am I and what drives me? I want to make sure I have a lot more than any of you because that means I win and that's what my life is all about. Materialism. And then there's individualism. That's, that's the ethic of me first. I got to be first in line. I got to get it first. I got to have it first. I, I got to be on top. I got to be better than you. Hedonism. Well, that's one of the more popular ones. What drives my life? Well, if it feels good, Hello, anybody home? Do it. If it feels good, do it. Then there's practicalism. And that's basically what drives my life. Well, if it works for you, that's great. And if it works, I'll do it. So all I care about, I don't care if it's right or wrong, moral, immoral. I just want to know, does it work? Then there's humanism. The, The ethic of humanism is basically, I am my own truth. Don't be judging me. Don't be intolerant of me. I I will determine what is moral and immoral. My sensitivities will determine what's right and wrong. I am my own truth. I determine the truth I'm going to live by. That's humanism. Then then there's fatalism. Those tend to be those who are victims. Kind of like things that never change. And so since things are never going to change, so I'll just kind of survive. But there's a seventh ethic, and I call it the kingdom ethic. It's theism. And basically, the kingdom ethic is this. I live my life as if I'm in the kingdom right now. Remember the Lord's Prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Earth as it is in heaven. You know, it's true. Jesus is going to return one day and establish his kingdom. and He'll rule the world. But, but, but Jesus, the one who will rule the world, rules my heart right now. When they were trying to press Jesus in Luke 17 about when the kingdom was going to come, when the kingdom going to come, it was Jesus who said, don't you understand, in a sense, the kingdom is in your midst. It's in your heart. Because if you let the king who is going to rule the kingdom rule your kingdom now, you live by a kingdom ethic. And it's a bad case of the normal for anybody who follows Jesus Christ. So what is this kingdom ethic? Have you ever thought yourself to be boring? What makes you think you're an interesting person? Have you ever been called boring? Might be because you are. (laughs) But who wants to be boring? I'll tell you, all these other ethics, except for the person living it out, they're pretty boring. But not the kingdom ethic. But here's my real question. What is it about you that would make you think that God was turned his head to pay attention to you. 
What, what, what is it about, what's so interesting about your life and about you that you think God would pay attention and focus on you? It's a very interesting statement that God makes in, in Isaiah 57. He says this in verse 15. He describes himself as the exalted God, his name is holy. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. Now how are you going to get his attention? Read the next rest verse. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly, the humble, and revive the spirit of the contrite, those who mourn and have remorse. It's humility that actually turns the head of God towards you. Now, now he says it again at the last of the Isaiah, chapter 66. Listen to what he says in verse 2. For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. Now how are you going to get the attention of the creator of the universe? You do know he's huge, to quote one politician. He says, for my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But, but, to this one I will look. Who's going to turn the head of God, who's creator of everything? He says, but this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. This humility thing catches the attention of God. That's why James says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the Humble. He says, submit and draw near to God and God will draw near to, to you. People say, I feel God's a million miles away. Guess who moved? God will draw near to you if you draw near to him. But how do I draw near to him? God says, it's when I am humble and have contrite of heart. You know what's fascinating about these two? They are the first two Beatitudes. It's the very first thing Jesus says when he starts talking about, you want to know where your head needs to be when it comes to living out the kingdom ethic? You start with humility and you start with contrite of heart. Say, what does this have to do with the Beatitudes? Everything. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Matthew 5 with me. And while you do that, our Declaration of Independence tells us that we have the right. Beloved, we've got the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Of happiness. Now, the only problem with the Declaration of Independence is that it doesn't give us a roadmap how to get to the happiness part. And Jesus is going to give us a roadmap to happiness, but he does it in such a radical way, most people blow it off. Would you please try to understand what Jesus means by what he says as he gives us these eight Beatitudes. Now relax, I'm not going to do all eight this morning. We're going to do four. And then Lord willing, we'll finish up next week with the final four. Notice it says in verse 1 of Matthew 5, When Jesus saw the crowds, 
He went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, rabbis would walk, and they would chit-chat and share and engage, but when they would sit down, this was a rabbinic way of saying, this is formal teaching. Then he says, he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, when a rabbi opened his mouth, it was a Hebrew way of saying, listen to what I'm about to say, because this is a core to your soul. And this is the priority Jesus puts on the Beatitudes. And notice the first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the humble. Well, that's a great way to start to hum the happiness. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Before you... Listen to what he's saying. The word makarios is the word blessed. And it describes the experience of happiness. The experience of being satisfied. The experience of having a sense that you're living out your purpose and significance in life. Now he says, this experience of happiness begins with those who are poor in spirit. Yo, great. What happiness is there going to be in poverty? No, 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 no. Economics has nothing to do with this. He's not talking about economic poverty. This is what we call a dative of reference. I know it's a little grammar, but relax. That didn't hurt, did it? And his dative of reference in the Greek basically means I'm talking about blessed, all the blessedness of those who are poor in reference to their spirit. Now, your spirit is that part of you that makes you not an animal. See, your spirit is what connects, communes, causes you to recognize there is a creator of you. It's your spirit. Now he says, blessed are those who are poor in reference to their spirit. Now this word poor, this is not a good word. I mean, he uses the worst of all the words for poor. Jesus uses this one, it's the word for abject poverty. It means poor in the sense that you possess nothing. You can produce nothing. You're left with nothing but to beg. You mean when it comes to my spirit, my relationship with God, I've got to beg? Hey, listen, that's what they were singing about. We were rescued. We were rescued. What does it have to do with our spirit? What turns the head of God? What causes the creator of the universe to take a look at us? Not competition that we think we're equal to God. It's when I realize low means God, you're God and I'm not. That's what he's saying here. I am in abject poverty when it comes to my spirituality. Sometimes we kind of think we're so spiritual. And that's, that, that dips into a self-righteousness. And by the way, that's why people think we're haters. That's why they think we're all about a bunch of Pharisees who judge and are intolerant. Because we come across self-righteous. Like we join with God as equality with God as righteous ones. And yet Jesus says the first thing you got to get your head wrapped around is you're not God. Don't even pretend you're like God because God is God and you are not. Spiritually, you're a zero. In a relationship with God, you brought nothing to the table. He saved us. He reached for us. He rescued us. God is God. I'm not. And that's the beginning of a cure for self-righteousness. Now, this is not a self-hate thing, but it's getting a grip on the reality that 
God, you're God and, and I'm not. I'm not your equal. I'm not your buddy. But you know, we fall into fits of self-divinity. Say, no, I don't. Oh, yes, you do. Oh, no, I don't. Oh, yes, you do. No, I don't. Yes, you do. But we're in denial about it. I'll show you what I mean. Last week, you got angry or frustrated at something. We won't have a shared time, but right now, get in your mind. This week, when did you get really angry or frustrated or mad? Because let me tell you why you did. This week, you got angry because something happened and you weren't treated very well. You weren't treated the way you felt you should have been treated. That clerk should have been more respectful. That waitress should have been more responsive. You know, they should listen to my ideas. They should do what I tell them to do. Basically, when I'm not treated well, that makes me mad. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. May you be treated with holiness in God. I don't like the way I was treated. Or, if that's not the reason you got angry, then this is the reason. Things weren't going your way. My will was not being done on earth as it is in heaven. You want to know why you got angry this week? Because you weren't being treated as a God. Because the perks of divinity is that I am treated well and my will is done. And when I'm not treated well and my will is not done, I get angry. Why am I angry? Because it's a spurt of self-divinity, arrogance, pride, and it's what God opposes. And that's why he says, out of the gate, if we're going to live a kingdom ethic that God draws near to us, we've got to first come up and understand, God, you're God, and I am not. So I don't expect to be treated as a God. John Calvin wrote, he only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. This is why James, James half-brother of Jesus. It's like Jesus sat him down and said, let me explain the Beatitudes to you, James. And he sure got the first two. Listen to James chapter four, verse six. But he gives greater grace, therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, visions of divinity, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Now draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Now catch this next. Here's the second beatitude. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Interesting. James still calls us sinners. But I'm a Christian. He still calls us sinners. Because we are forgiven. But he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. I love that word double-minded. In the Greek, it's dipsukoi. <laughs> Sounds like dipstick. Don't be a dipstick. The word dip, die, means double, psukoi, soul, double sold. Stop acting like two people, two souls. Are you a child of God or are you not? Do you follow Christ or do you not? Do you live the kingdom ethic or do you not? He says, be miserable. Now this is a great verse nine. Memorize this one, make it a tattoo. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Boy, put that picking thing on a t-shirt. <laughs> What's with all this gloom and weeping and crying? At least he says, humble yourself in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. What is this? It's the second beatitude. Look at number two, verse four. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. 
Now this makes great sense. So what's this? This is a roadmap to happiness. So uh, happiness is sadness. Sadness reaches, meets me to happiness. I don't get it. There are nine words in the Greek for sadness. And this is the worst one Jesus uses. It's the one that speaks of grieving over the loss of a child. I know our, our family knows what that's like. And I know many of you, you know what that's like. But the question is why? Why would God want us to be so sad? Well, notice the blessing here is not in the sadness, but in the comfort. But it's the sadness that gets you to the comfort. See, what are you talking about? Well, sadness is an emotion. Isn't that something we ought to get therapy for? You're so sad. Don't be sad. It's not Christian to be sad. Sober. Wait, 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 wait. Why did God create us with emotions in the first place? So we wouldn't be a big blob of glue rolling down the street with no feelings? No, God is designed with the emotions, and there is a design behind every emotion. For example, the emotion of affection. When you feel affection, it moves you. The word is emotional. It moves you to serve someone that you have affection for. Fear. If you have the emotion of fear, that moves you to run or to fight. If you got the strongest of the emotions, anger, well, that moves you to correct injustice. But what about the emotion of sadness? What does sadness move us to? Reflection. Is the only time that we reflect about serious things is when we are sad. And what are we reflecting on? Let me ask you this. Why the cross? Why do we take the bread with the cup in communion? I know John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus' death on the cross was a sacrificial lamb that was foretold as the practice in the Old Testament. But here's my question. I read and look at the Old Testament and I don't see them taking the lambs and beating the spit out of them and then nailing them to little crosses. What's that all about? Why, why, why don't we just have the cup? And remember, Jesus Christ, he's bled, he died, and that's the wages of sin. What's with the bread? But what did Jesus say? The bread is, this is my body, which is what? Broken for you. They didn't torture the lambs in the Old Testament and then have them die. And yet Jesus was tortured, crucified. And then we we're told to remember that torture and that pain by taking the bread. What's that all about? What it's all about is sin is really attractive. And our world really paints it, and we paint it as something that's pleasurable. Hebrews 11 even says there's pleasure in sin, be honest, for a season. But what did the cross do? It stripped away the attractiveness of the pleasure of sin and exposed what sin produces. The pain, the suffering, the torture. It was sin that put Jesus on that cross. So we would get a really good look at what we're being forgiven of and the potential of sinfulness in us. See, what is this evil that we see all around us? How, how does this evil enter into the mind of human beings to slaughter 10 children in France? 
to assassinate five officers in Dallas. To continue this racism in our country. How does this evil get into the mind, this desire get into the mind of human beings to do such sinful things that produce so much pain and suffering? You know, there is an answer. I've asked you this before, but I don't even imagine you remember anything I say. So I keep coming back. What's the dumbest thing Judas ever did? Not a trick question. What's the dumbest thing Jesus ever did? He betrayed Christ. Hey, don't betray the guy who walks on water. Don't betray the guy who stops the storms. He can hurt you. Betray one of the other lugs. And yet we are told in John 13, verse 2, and Satan put it into the heart of Judas to betray Christ. Satan placed the thought and desire in Judas. Not all thoughts and desires are your own. And the evil one of darkness, he places those thoughts and desires in human beings and beloved or sinners. He can place those thoughts and desires in us. And I grieve, I mourn like a lost child over the consequences of sin around in my world. But Jesus says, start with your own sinfulness. I'm a sinner. And you give me back there 2,000 years ago and you put me on a certain bad day, I could have been crying out, crucify him. Crucify him. I'm a sinner. But he doesn't say, blessedness is the morning, but the morning gets you to the comfort. What's the comfort? It's the forgiveness of my sinfulness. The fact I live in the land of mercy. I'm not down on myself saying I'm a sinner. I'm just telling the truth but I'm forgiven. And the fact I embrace my sinfulness, I can deeply appreciate and be grateful for my forgiveness of it. God poured his wrath upon his own son on that cross. Jesus took upon himself all the consequences, the misery, the pain, the suffering of what my sin would produce on himself so the father could forgive me. And I happen to know Psalm 103 when it says, and the God is a father that is so compassionate, he'll remove you from your sin when he forgives you as far as the east is from the west. Remember we said, it doesn't say as far as the north is from the south, because if you're going north, you're going to start going what? South. But if you're going east, you're never going west until your wife tells you to turn around, then you're going to go west. But the fact is, there is no end. And then I, theologically, I don't understand Jeremiah 31, 33. When God says, the new covenant, when the Messiah, my son, comes and I forgive, let me tell you about my forgiveness. He says, because you can't even fathom it. I will, he says in Jeremiah 31, 33, I will forgive their sins and their iniquities. I will remember no longer. I don't know how he does that. Something about omniscience that he can dismiss and to remember no longer our sinfulness as we confess it. I, um, I'm not God. I lay low. God, you're God, I'm not. 
Well, then what does that make me? I'm not to be treated as a God because I'm a sinner like everyone else. But I am comforted by my forgiveness. I'm a sinner who lives in a land of mercy. Well, then how do I express such gratefulness for living in a land of mercy and forgiveness of my sinfulness? Well, look at the next beatitude. Blessed are the gentle. He says, blessed, verse 5, are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. They shall inherit the earth and reign with Christ when he returns. But blessed are the gentle. Now, if you have a King James translation, I know it says meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the world. And meek sounds like weak. So that doesn't sound very Tarzan to me. Where's the manliness of that? It could not be further from the meaning of this word gentle. We translate gentle. The word that Jesus uses spoke of, spoke of breaking a powerful animal like a horse, bringing its strength under the control of his master. Gentleness is strength. It's everything about you that makes you strong. It's your influence, your physical strength, your intelligence, your, your abilities, your talents. Anything that makes you strong but it is broken down that no longer is it motivated by self-will, me first ethic, but rather it's all to benefit others. I break it down and Lord, whatever I have, my gentleness is when it benefits someone else. If you got a beautiful voice, do you, do you sing in the choir? I should say, yeah, of course you sing in the choir. Do you sing in the, in the, in the shower? No, shower's a place for people like me to sing. Do you think I go to a closet and teach into a closet by myself? No, anything you have, the real satisfaction and enjoyment of it is as it benefits the welfare of others. See, this is exactly, Paul wanted to make sure we got this one nailed down. That's why in Philippians chapter 2, Paul, Paul says this. Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, the idea of self-divinity, but with humility of mind, there it is, with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Now take out a little pen or pencil and let's scratch that line out because I don't like that line. Of course, we get in the habit of scratching out Scripture we're in trouble, are we not? So maybe we ought to run with it, don't you think? So he couldn't mean what he just said, could he? Do nothing from selfishness or self-divinity, believing that you should be treated like a God, but with humility, stay low of mine. God is God, you're not. Regard one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. Aww but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude, be attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Here's the point. Get, get, get this. You want a sense that how does I turn? What's so interesting about my life that turns the head of the God who dwells the heavens, who's the creator of the universe? What turns his attention to me so he draws near to me? When I realize God is God, I'm not. Who am I? I don't expect to be treated like one. I'm a sinner. 
but I'm forgiven. I live in a land of mercy. I am so grateful. So therefore, when I engage, draw near to someone else, and I'm caring for their well-being, that is when God draws near to me. And when I'm simply drawn and benefiting myself, God opposes the what? That's when God is a million miles away. And he's got others to pay attention to, not you. But I want my heavenly father's attention. So every time I'm engaged and drawn near to another to benefit their well-being in some way, that is the moment God is drawn near to me. And there's an intimacy with your heavenly father you'll have no other time. But why? Why would I do this? Why, why, why would I want to benefit others? Well, for this morning, that's the fourth and last beatitude. Verse six. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the hungry. You know, we, we, we get hungry and thirsty, but, but back in these days, the average person received meat once a week. They were never too far from being hungry. And in the desert and the heat and the sand, filling up their nostrils, they understood what hunger and thirst means, but we have a little sense of it because when you're really hungry and you're really thirsty, it becomes a passion. In other words, at that moment, the most important thing to you is you want something to eat, and that's all you're really thinking about. And if you're thirsty, you want something to drink, and that's really all that you're thinking about. It's your passion. So he says, blessed are the ones that their passion, the most important thing on their mind is righteousness. Now, what, 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 what is righteousness? Remember we shared with you, this is an ancient architectural term. It's a term architects use to describe the relationship between two lines. They're building a building and they need to have a corner that's the right angle. The moment those lines are at 90 degrees, those lines are justified, made righteous. They're in a right relationship with each other. That's why this word dikaios is sometimes translated righteousness and sometimes translated to justify. You've been justified. You've been made righteous. We live out righteousness. What is he talking about? He's talking about the right relationship with God, your creator. But, but what relationship did God want? What relation does our creator want to have with us? Well, if it's merely just creator to creature, <laughs> he's got all kinds of creatures like you. He's got dogs and cats and pigs and mules and worms and bugs and you. But Genesis 1.27 says, but you, you creature were created in the image of God. He didn't create any other creature in his own image. Like he had something else in mind for this creature called human beings. Well, what, what would that relationship be? Get, get a clue. In the Trinity, the triunity, God reveals himself in the scripture as God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We Christians tend to be embarrassed about that because it's hard to explain because we don't understand it. And so people say, oh, you believe in three gods. Oh, you're all confused. And you say, well, no, I believe in Trinity, but I don't know. Relax. <laughs> Sigmund Freud told, told us that we made up all our gods out of sexual frustration. 
Well, I can understand making up a God like Apollo of power, Tarzan God. Or a God of fertility, full sexy deal. Or a God of Bacchus because I like wine. So I can understand Freud may be right. We make up gods. Do a little McDonald thing of something we like, supersize them and make it a God. But here's my problem for us Christians. Why would I make up a God I don't understand and can't explain? This is the very evidence that we don't understand the Trinity. We can't explain the Trinity. It's the very evidence that that's what he revealed himself to be. We didn't make this up. But when the first person of the Trinity wanted to describe his relationship with the second person of the Trinity, what was the relationship he chose to des- describe? Mutton Jeff, Batman Robin, little ice cream, Ben and Jerry? It was a father to a son and a son to a father. Every time Jesus prayed, he began each prayer when he was on this earth, Father, Father, Heavenly Father. Except for the one time he's on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Some think, well, he's losing it there. You don't quote scripture when you're losing it. And he's quote Psalm 22.1. If you want to know what Jesus was thinking about when he was on the cross, read the rest of Psalm 22. I promise, if he knew the first verse, he knows the rest of the picking psalm. But the fact is, every time Jesus prayed, it was always Father, Father. John 1.12, but as many as believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, to them God gave them the authority to become the sons of the children of God. Romans 8, 16, don't you know it's the spirit of God in you that bears witness with your spirit that you're a child of God? 2 Corinthians 6, God says, I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters to me. That's the right relationship. What is this thirst and desire for righteousness? It's embracing who you really are and what God created you to be when he made you in his own image to be in a right relationship, to be a son to a heavenly father, a daughter to a heavenly father. Creatures simply ignore their creator or try to appease him with religion. But a son, a daughter, ah, they want to be delight to their father. They want to honor their father. So what is this attitude of the kingdom ethic as I close this section? Well, it begins with, God, you're God, I'm not. So I don't expect to be treated as a God. Me? I'm a sinner. And I grieve over my sinfulness and what it produces and can produce. But I'm forgiven. And I'm here not to be served, but to serve. It's not about me. And fourthly, I am true to who I really am. A child of God delighting his heavenly father. Psalm 37, 4 says, if your attitude is to delight the heavenly father, delight the father, he'll actually implant his desires in your heart. So when I'm delighted in my father, talk about drawing near to me, talking about engaging in me and through me, it's when that's what I'm really all about. I'm just a son of the heavenly father, one of his children, who lives my life to delight my father. That's why I do what I do. This is my ethic. This is my kingdom ethic. This defines who I am. This drives who I am. And we talk about the racial tensions going on. You know, it's not necessarily all this racism. From where does it come? It's just not about black and white. We, we did some work in Tanzania years ago, and there were trials in Tanzania, war crimes between two tribes who slaughtered each other. 
and they were both of color, but they slaughtered each other because of the shape of their nose. One tribe had a unique shape to their nose and thus they were slaughtered. See, this racism is all about, I'm better than you. This idea, I've got to be better than, better than, better than. From where do you think that comes? Not from one living out an ethic, a kingdom ethic that God, you're God, I'm not. I don't expect to be treated like one. I'm not better than anyone. I'm a sinner, but praise God, I grieve over my sinfulness, but I'm forgiven. And so therefore, I'm here not to be served, but to serve. Why? Because I'm in a right relationship with my creator. I'm one of his children, and I, my life is defined and driven by just being a delight and honoring my father. That's who I am. That's the ethic I live. But we're not done. There's four more. So next week, come on back and I'll take you to the final four. God bless you, walk worthy. <laughs>